Well, hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to our second session on Theology Condensed. And I just want to acknowledge that the teaching is based on John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name, and it's a well worth a read. We are looking at Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7. Who God is, what he is like, as he reveals himself to Moses in a personal conversation on Mount Sinai. When we begin to discover from the Bible who God is, rather than who we might think he is, that will affect both how we view God, how we relate to him, it will affect how we view ourselves, the world that we live in, and our place in it. So last week, Chris shared with us that God revealed to Moses that his name is Yahweh, which is the Hebrew translation. And Hebrew names were considered to be really important because they depicted and reflected the character of a person. So tonight we are thinking about why God needs a name. What is the significance and the implications of him being called Yahweh? Couldn't he just be called God? So look with me, if you have your Bible, at Exodus 34, verses 5 to 6. The Lord Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. So why is God repeating his name here? I don't think it was because Moses was hard of hearing. It was because God wanted Moses to stop, listen, take note, and think about who God is. God is emphasizing that his name is Yahweh. It's a bit like when we write an email and we might put a word in bold or underline it just to signify and highlight its importance. Why then is the name Yahweh important? Well, because the name is personal to God alone, because the name identifies him, and because the name personally distinguishes Yahweh from all other gods. And that was vital for the people and world in Bible times. And it is still vital for us in our world today to be able to identify and to distinguish who God is from all other gods. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought that there is only one God. So what are you talking about, all other gods? Okay, let's explore that a bit together. When we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word for God there in Hebrew is Elohim, which literally means a spiritual creature or being in the invisible world. Elohim was a word used for all sorts of other spiritual beings. So for the Hebrews, this would read, in the beginning, Elohim, a spiritual being, created the heavens and the earth. So who is this Elohim? Well, he is the creator God 
of the universe. And that is a very radical statement to make. And immediately that makes Yahweh stand out to the Hebrews as very different and very distinctive from all other Elohim. And furthermore, what a claim to make to be the creator God in an ancient world that was just full of creation stories or myths. And people took hold of these myths, probably in an attempt to make sense of the world that they lived in and their place in it. And many of these myths actually stated that the universe was created as a result of a great conflict between the gods. And some of the stories you can read are, are a bit bizarre, and some are quite gross. So for Hebrews then, Yahweh being the creator Elohim, separates and distinguishes him from all other Elohim, and places Yahweh in a completely different category in which he stands alone as the unique and supreme creator God or Elohim of the universe, the one and only true God who made everything not out of conflict, but out of the abundance of his creative love. Yahweh, Yahweh is his name. Let's consider then this question, real or sham? What about these other Elohim, other gods that are mentioned in the Bible that were understood to be in the spiritual world? Are they a figment of ancient people's creative imagination, a sham? Or was there a spiritual reality to them, exercising some kind of power or influence? Let's look then at some biblical evidence or events. First of all, Yahweh and Pharaoh's gods. Exodus 7:16, we read about the great struggle and conflict experienced when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, as Yahweh told him to, the Lord Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Big problem, because Moses was saying this to the Pharaoh of an Egyptian god and an Egyptian nation, rather, that worshipped many different Elohim, many different gods. And Pharaoh's reaction in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5 is, who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? In other words, you know what you can do, Moses. I'm not listening to you or your God. We have our own gods. Thank you very much. And Pharaoh stood his ground. And what subsequently unfolded then was a very real powers contest, not just between two human beings, but between Yahweh, the God of Moses, and the gods of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. On the one hand, Yahweh revealing and demonstrating who he is, his miraculous power and supremacy. For example, turning the rod into a snake, the water of the Nile into blood, and so on and so on. But get this, each time Pharaoh's magicians copied and did exactly the same, apart when it came to gnats, they did have a problem with that. It looked at first that they were evenly matched, but they weren't. But the question is, what power were they availing themselves of? Exodus 7, verse 11 says this, And the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Black magic was rife in Egypt 
And sorry, but we're not talking about the chocolates here because it is thought that these magicians functioned as types of priests to the Egyptian deities and notice they could produce the miraculous. So other Elohim, other gods, the invisible spiritual world, real or sham, figment of the imagination, or it exists. The Egyptian chief god was called Amun-Ra, the sun god, considered to be the king of their deities. How significant and a bit ironic that Yahweh chose to blot out the sun and for three days the Egyptians were fumbling about in the pitch dark. It was a bit like saying, get the point, Pharaoh. Yahweh, the I am, actually created the sun in the first place. But Pharaoh refused to get the point and he stood his ground. Many of the plagues that Yahweh sent were in fact specifically directed at an Egyptian deity. Yahweh revealing that he stands alone as the supreme, all-powerful God. In Exodus 12, verse 10, he says this to Moses, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And he did. Yahweh responded to the cry of the Israelites in their captivity and bondage. Their freedom was both physical and spiritual freedom. Let my people go that they may worship me. And that's what they did in their freedom. Exodus 15, 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And then look at the worship in Psalms, Psalm 96. Great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 97, verse 9, For you, Lord, you, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Secondly, on this question of other gods, consider what happened with King Solomon and Israel. And it all began so very well, didn't it? And it all went so very wrong. His downfall was women, or should I say, the love of women. 1 Kings 11.1. 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. All from nations that worshipped other gods. And the Israelites had been warned not to intermarry and be turned away to the worship of other gods and idols. And what happened? 1 Kings 11.5, we learn that Solomon followed Astrith, the goddess of the Sidonians, Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built a high place, which was an altar for worship, for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, and there were a lot of them, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. We have here a list of named gods. And notice also they were gods over specific geographic regions or nations, as we would say today, and the people who lived there. And the worship and the influence of these gods 
then infiltrated into the nation and the lives of the people of Israel. And there is nothing here in the Bible that indicates that these gods were not real, that they were merely superstitious nonsense. The question arises then as to what measure of, of influence and power these gods, these spiritual beings had over nations and the lives of the people who lived there. It also raises the question, is there an implication for that today of spiritual powers over nations and people? There's a thought. Thirdly, a very mysterious incident in the book of Daniel, Daniel 10, 12. And it indicates the existence of other spiritual beings. When Daniel is informed by an angel from Yahweh that his answer to his prayers were blocked and delayed due to a spiritual conflict taking place, and it mentions two named spiritual beings, the prince of the Persian kingdom and the prince of Greece. However, Yahweh's messenger broke through with the answer to Daniel's prayer. What is that saying to us about the importance and value of prayer and of God's power at work when we pray? So throughout the Bible, there is reference to different spiritual beings that exist. We read of gods, angels, demons, cherubim and seraphim, principalities, spiritual forces of evil, heavenly beings, the prince of this world, Satan. This is the Bible and God's view of the world we live in. And when we look through the lens of the Bible, it is very clear about there being a spiritually charged universe with a cosmic war taking place. And then what about the Israelites? Powerfully set free by Yahweh, the creator God of the universe, who revealed himself as the one true Elohim above all Elohim. And what do we read? They continually over and over again choose to open their hearts and their lives to the worship of other gods who were in direct rebellion and opposition to Yahweh. And the picture we are given is of a lifestyle of idolatry, injustice, hatred, cruelty, in a world that increasingly becomes gripped in chaos and wickedness. And then, out of desperation, the people cry out. And who do they cry out to? Yahweh, pleading for mercy and for him to do something about it. Psalm 83, verse 1. O oh God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof. O oh God, see how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, whose name is Yahweh, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Let them know who you are. And that is exactly what Yahweh did. The creator God of the universe comes in the flesh into the world he created, experiences human life firsthand. Enter Jesus, the I am. Isn't it interesting in Jesus' ministry how many times he uses the phrase, I am the, echoing Yahweh in the Old Testament, I am who I am. Question, if I was to ask you, what was Jesus' purpose in coming into the world? 
I expect you would give me a variety of answers, many of them true. But I wonder if you'd mention what is stated in 1 John 3.8. John tells us there that the purpose of the coming of Jesus into the world was that he might destroy the devil's work. As in the Old Testament, the New Testament is very clear in portraying a great conflict between the forces of God and good on the one hand and the forces of Satan or the devil on the other. The Bible makes it clear that Satan sinned and rebelled against God from the very beginning. Have a read of Isaiah chapter 14, 12 following. It paints a clear picture. The meaning of his name in Greek is adversary or accuser. The Bible always depicts him as hostile to God, in opposition to him, with an agenda to overthrow the purposes of God. Other gospel writers back up John's understanding of Jesus' purpose in coming into this world. Mark 1:30 says Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And no, they are not little Disney cartoon characters with horns and a pitchfork. They are in the Bible revealed as spiritual beings who are part of the devil's forces. Luke in Acts 10, 38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And the Gospels contain many incidences in Jesus' ministry of him casting out all sorts of demons. He could discern their presence, and they recognized who he was and they were always subject to him, the all-powerful God. He had come to bring life, to release, to heal, and to free people from darkness into his light. The Elohim above all Elohim had come to destroy the works of the devil. And this culminates supremely, doesn't it, in Jesus' death and resurrection, his victory over Satan, death and spiritual darkness. Now, you might be thinking, I thought the cross was about Jesus dying in my place for my sin so that I could be put right with God. And yes, that is true. And perhaps in Bible teaching, that aspect of the cross has been emphasized. But there is a wider picture of what Jesus' victory on the cross is all about that we also need to take hold of because it very much affects our lives and how we live. Paul in Colossians says this, Colossians 2:15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews in 2 verse 14, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus broke the power to bring us into the kingdom of light. The saying goes, doesn't it, know your enemy. But we first of all need to know our God, who he is, what he is like, but be aware that there is an enemy. So is this spiritual enemy and adversary, is he still around? Yes, he is. And why is that? Because although defeated at the cross, Jesus has still to finally deal with him. 
according to the Bible, we are in an interim period whereby the war has been won, but Satan is still angrily skirmishing around and punching blows, a bad loser, until Jesus comes again and finally judges. So we have just been looking then through the lens of the Bible at how God's name Yahweh distinguishes him and sets him apart as the Elohim above all Elohim, his supremacy above all other gods in the universe, and that in Jesus he came to the rescue to confront and to destroy the works of the devil so that humanity could be set free to personally know and worship God as Father. Let's consider now how this biblical view stands alongside other views that are present in our world, views that can also influence and shape our lives. In our Western world, I reckon that the reaction to this biblical view we have just looked at would be, so you're talking about an invisible spiritual world and a cosmic war. You're watching too many Star Wars films. We are now educated, gained a lot of knowledge. So an invisible spiritual world, sorry, fiction. Even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, it can be very easily to be influenced and drawn into such secular thinking. Well, we might believe in angels, especially at Christmas, and of course, they are female, wear white, and they have wings, except the Bible portrays them as male and no wings. And as for Satan and demons, oh, awkward. We probably prefer not to think about that, file it away, and so we duck our heads below the parapet of any thought of there being any conflict spiritually and spiritual battles going on. It is, of course, said that the devil's cleverest lie is to make us believe that he just doesn't exist. Whereas Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the spiritual authorities of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we need to be equipped by God and keep alert. There are, of course, many worldviews around, competing for dominance and influence in our lives, and many of them are isms, and you'll have heard of them. Secularism, materialism, atheism, agnosticism, humanism are but a few. I just want us to consider two views in particular. Firstly, pluralism. This view believes that when it comes to world religions, all paths lead up the same mountain to God. So whether you are a Christian, a Jew, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, whatever, it doesn't matter. It all gets to God at the end of the day. And this view arose out of people deciding that all the world religions had similarities, similar values, and some of them do. But basically, they're actually saying all the same thing. Of course, in a diverse world, this sounds great. It sounds very comfortable, accommodating, tolerant, but it is not the worldview that the Bible and Jesus gives. And the problem with this view and the reality is that all around the world, there are people worshiping very different gods, and they don't believe and they don't think that they're all the same. In fact, there is a huge difference between them. 
In contrast to this, the Bible view is called monotheism. Mono means one, that there is one God, one true God. And many Western Christians would understand monotheism in this way, that there is one God, yes, but then that must mean that there are no other gods. They aren't real at all. They are completely false non-entities, so they are dismissed and disregarded. They just don't exist. And the one and only way to get up the mountain to God then is through Jesus. Another better way, perhaps, to think about monotheism is this, to acknowledge that there are many religions and each represents a separate mountain on top of which is a real spiritual being that is worshipped. Paul in Ephesians 3.10 refers to them as rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, there are very different paths up very different mountains to very different destinations. And Yahweh, however, is the only true creator God of the universe who is worthy of the title God, who in the New Testament comes down the mountain in Jesus to reach and rescue the world. And notice we don't by our own effort have to climb that mountain to God. Jesus is the one who comes down and is the way to bring us to God. For us then, what we believe will influence and inform our worldview. And this in turn will have implications for how we think about various matters and issues in life. So let's jump in at the deep end. It will have implications, for example, as to what we think about evil. Philosophers call it the problem of evil, which is one of the main causes of unbelief among people. If there's a God and he's all loving, then why is there evil in the world? And as Christians, it might cause us a problem to get our heads around reconciling the awful things sometimes we see human beings treating one another and the events in our world that happen with a loving, creating God. The Bible writers, interestingly, they don't have a philosophical debate about evil. Rather, they just acknowledge that it exists. Now, we have looked tonight at how the Bible depicts a world that can be like a battlefield with forces of good and evil. The Bible also clearly states that the very essence and nature of Yahweh, his character, is love. He holds love as the supreme value of the world he has created. And he places love within a framework of relational choice to love him, to worship him, to serve him as the one true God. Choice requires freedom in order to love. And Yahweh, the loving creator God of the universe, has created human beings, giving us the space the freedom, and the dignity of having a will to choose. If we believe that this loving God gave human beings and spiritual beings the dignity of choice, that means there will be a byproduct of consequences that in turn will influence and shape life and the world we live in. It's an area of great debate and amongst Christians, the whole question of God's sovereign will 
Spiritual beings have a will. Human beings have a will. It's not straightforward. But God is still in overall control. But he is not controlling. And just think, if the Bible describes God is perfect love, wouldn't that follow then that his will is always for good? Of course, I don't know it all. We don't know it all. And there will always be a sense of mystery. That's the difference between being human and Yahweh being God. But the debate will continue. Another view to think about, which is increasingly common in our world today, is the question of spirituality. There are many people who would say that they are spiritual or have a spirituality in life. They may say that they believe in God, but they are not sure about Jesus and Christianity. Of course, that raises the question, well, what God do you believe in? Which is a good one to explore with someone. What they may be referring to is that they value meaning and purpose in life, which is to be respected and built upon with them. They may, for example, be followers of holistic practices, which are very popular today. Biblical spirituality, however, is completely centered upon Jesus. So as Christians, we need to be careful and discerning as to what kind of spirituality people are referring to and be prepared as opportunities arise to share the difference that Jesus makes. There can also, of course, be a spirituality involved with occult practices. These existed back in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and they are still very prevalent today. And the Bible does give strong warning about that. Basically, keep clear of them, because there is an invisible spiritual world that can produce harmful effects. Finally, our view of idolatry, which is talked about both in the Old Testament and in the New. A rabbi was asked this question. When the Israelites had seen God work all these miracles, why did they so quickly turn from the God they knew was absolutely real to worshipping idols that they made with their own hands? And the rabbi answered with a smile and said, when God is God, God is in control. But when human beings create an idol, human beings are being God and human beings are then in control. That's one way of viewing idolatry, the whole question of who is going to be in charge, who is in control. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul says this, flee from idolatry, as does John in 1 John 21. Keep yourselves from idols. Are they talking about something deeper here? Paul is actually referring to when the Israelites worshipped and gave sacrifices to an idol, that they were actually giving themselves to the worship of the God of that idol, the spiritual entity behind it. And in verse 21, in speaking about this, he makes this point, I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, don't open your life in any way to the demonic world. So what today are the gods and the idols of our present world that can govern people's lives? Is it the God and worship of power, the God and worship of money, the God and worship of sex, the God and worship of self-image? It's when life becomes controlled and influenced, shaped by a particular all-consuming focus. 
here is an interesting quote from a novelist, David Foster Wallace. This is what he says. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he warns, if you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. This brings us to finish with the important question of, so where are you at? As we have looked through the lens of the Bible at Yahweh, the distinctive one true creator God of the universe, who created everything out of his love, the most high above all gods, the source and the giver of life, Yahweh who loves us and gives us the choice through Jesus to love and know him as our father. This is what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, the only true God who is deserving of our worship. So what do you think? We're going to worship now with a song, The Lion and the Lamb. <laughs> 